Welcome to the Words Matter Library. She is a mother of five who until December of 2012 was a stay-at-home mom and former communications executive. The day after the Sandy Hook tragedy, Shannon Watts started a Facebook group with the message that all Americans can and should do more to reduce gun violence. That online conversation turned into a grassroots movement, Moms Demand Action, which now has a chapter in every state and is part of Every Town for Gun Safety, the largest gun violence prevention organization in the country with nearly 6 million members. Shannon Watts is the author of Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. She's also an active board member of Emerge America, one of the leading organizations for recruiting and training women to run for office. Shannon Watts, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Take us back to December of 2012. What happened and how did you react? I was a stay-at-home mom, five, living in Indiana, and I can remember folding laundry that day and watching the news. And it said that a horrific shooting tragedy had happened in Newtown, Connecticut. And I can remember thinking, dear God, don't let this be as horrible as it seems. And as we all know, it was worse than really the human mind can fathom that 20 first graders and six educators would be murdered in the sanctity of an elementary school. So I grew incredibly sad and and distraught, but at the same time, I was incredibly angry because I saw pundits on my television telling me the solution was actually more guns, that there just weren't enough guns in the hands of civilians to make us safer. And I knew that wasn't true. I knew our nation was broken. So I went online and I thought, I will join something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for the issue of gun safety. And I couldn't find anything that I was looking for. I found some think tanks mostly run by men. I thought, found some one-off state organizations, again, mostly run by men. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women that were fighting on this issue across the country. So I just started a Facebook page to have that conversation. I had 75 Facebook friends at the time. I don't know that I thought it would be anything more than an online conversation, but very quickly, these other mothers and women who were so angry like I was that day, turned it into an offline movement. As you said, you sat down and you, you just put up a Facebook page. And here's what you wrote. This site is dedicated to action on gun control, not just a dialogue about anti-gun violence. Change will require action by angry Americans outside of Washington, D.C. And you went on to say, don't let anyone tell you we can't talk about this tragedy now. They said the same after Virginia Tech, Gabby Giffords, and Aurora. The time is now. In the days and weeks after that, what happened? Well, immediately, these type A women started Googling me and finding my phone number and my email and reaching out to me and saying, we want to do this where we live. And none of us really knew what that this was. We just knew that we had to organize. In fact, I called the CEO of Mothers Against Drunk Driving and said, can you Give me advice. How, how did you do this? And we hired her actually two years ago to help run our grassroots. But we just started creating Facebook pages and welcoming people in our own states to get together to have in-person meetings to talk about how do we organize across the country as one organization. But really what started to move us in a certain direction was a call from the White House. And they said, this mansion to me, Bill is coming. It's a bipartisan bill that would close the background check loophole in honor of this tragedy that had happened. We want 
you to stand with us, your organization to stand with us as we work to do this. And so we immediately started spending the majority of our time in district meetings with our members of Congress, specifically senators, and also traveling to D.C. We had something called Moms Take the Hill Day, where we all came to D.C. to lobby our lawmakers to vote for this bill. Then in April of 2013, just months after Sandy Hook, the bill failed by a handful of votes, including even Democratic senators. And I thought, okay, you know, we've done our best. We've worked hard. Maybe the country isn't ready for this. But really intuitively, our volunteers just pivoted and said, we're going to do this work in the state houses and boardrooms where we live. Because even though the Senate, Congress won't act, our governors will. What we found out when we got there was that in addition to trying to pass good laws, we would really have our hands full stopping bad laws, playing defense as much as we play offense, if not more. I I do want to get to that. One of the things I found incredibly disturbing, which was within 24 hours of you setting up this Facebook page, you started to get death threats, threats of sexual violence. Your email was hacked. Your personal information, your children's personal information was targeted and exposed. You contacted the local police. And what did they say to you? I was in a pretty red area of Indiana, and the police came to my house, and he said, that's what you get when you mess with the Second Amendment, ma'am. And I really realized I was sort of in no man's land, that I would have to rely on my own strength and conviction and the support of the other volunteers who felt the same way I did and frankly lived in redder states than I did, and that this was going to be harder than I thought, that even though There was a vocal minority that was out there making sure that the gun lobby had its way with our lawmakers. We had to be less silent in the majority. You describe a scene in March of 2014 where you found yourself as a witness at a hearing in the Indiana State Mm -hmm. Legislature. The chapter title is called Channel Your Inner Badass. And here's what you wrote. These middle-aged white dudes are not going to mansplain gun safety to a mom after a shooting inside a school. If they're going to go after me, I was going to give it right back. Talk about that experience and what you learned and how you went forward. So up until the point that I gave that testimony, I had really been doing all of this work for my house and had been traveling and interacting with volunteers. But this was the first time I was in the hot seat at the state house. And here I was sitting by myself giving this testimony to a panel of almost all white men. There was one white woman there. And... They were so incredibly hostile. They were loaded for bear. They were ready for me to come. And they wanted to humiliate me. That was the clear purpose. And in fact, if I spoke out of turn, you know, they would say, don't speak unless spoken to. I mean, it was just so anachronistic. And it felt so strange to me that the elected officials that were there to protect and serve everybody clearly had an agenda. And At first, I was really scared. I mean, I was sweating. I was really nervous. I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But very quickly, that turned into, oh, no, this is not (laughs) going to go down this way. And I got angry. And I refused to be intimidated and silenced. And there were a lot of really interesting articles written about it, which said, bullying is not acceptable by lawmakers. When people come prepared with data, they should be listened to. Another thing I found remarkable in reading your book, you said that you don't like public speaking. Mm. I don't mind it now, but I was so terrified. The first time I spoke was in Washington, D.C., in a rally after Sandy Hook. It was January, and it was the coldest day I had ever experienced in my life. And I was so nervous that after I spoke, I couldn't even hold a glass of water 
that's, I mean, it would, it would have spilled. Uh, my hands were shaking so hard. And that was a part of the job that if I had known that, that I would be doing this in, in my volunteer work, I, I'm not, might not have taken it on. Right. But what's so fascinating about the human brain is that I don't even get nervous now. I can speak to huge crowds. I can speak off the cuff. And it really goes to show that if I can do that, having been so scared, anyone can do it. You talk about the role of social media. Would Moms Demand Action have been possible without social media? I often wonder how in the world Mothers Against Drunk Driving did it back in the 80s. I mean, did they send each other letters? Were they calling each other? Did they drive to each other's homes? I mean, they got so much done. It took a decade for them to pass the laws that they needed to to reduce drunk driving deaths. But I can't imagine doing this without social media. What we've accomplished in six years is in large part the ability to organize online, the ability to apply pressure to companies and lawmakers online, the ability to tell our stories. You know, gatekeepers in this society are mostly men. And you wouldn't believe all of the different shows that I haven't been invited to that men who know a lot less about this issue are frequently uh, guests on. So I'm grateful that it serves as sort of a bullhorn. You call it a woman's bullhorn. Mm -hmm. and, And you talk about the gatekeepers. You explain in the book that gun violence disproportionately affects women and people of color. What impact does that have on the policy and the politics of the issue and the challenges that you face? Communities of color, particularly women in those communities, have been on the front line of this issue for decades. They've been invisible. We are grateful to to join them, to lift up their work, to partner with them. It's so important that we highlight the fact that communities of color, marginalized communities, are at much higher risk of gun violence. We have certain levers of power we can pull as women, right? We're only 20% of state lawmakers, 20% of federal lawmakers, less than 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. But we're the majority of the voting electorate. We're the majority of the population. And we also make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And so those are incredibly levers of power that we can pull effectively to create change. Surprisingly, Data on gun violence or reliable data is hard to find. In 1993, the CDC funded a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. What did that study show and then what happened next? So that study showed that just having a gun in your home put you at higher risk for gun violence. Seems pretty intuitive. But the NRA was not having it and they were able to get Congress to essentially stop funding gun violence research by the government, which has made it very hard for us to understand What is the extent of our crisis? How do we solve our crisis? We have to rely on data at medical facilities, research facilities. We do that kind of research at every town, for example. But we really do need the government. We need Congress to fund the CDC because that data helps us know which laws work and which won't. You would think the NRA would support that as opposed to making laws based on anecdotes. But so far, they've fought us every step of the way. For those who aren't familiar Talk for a minute about stand-your-ground laws and how they disproportionately affect people of color. Stand-your-ground laws are a way to give armed vigilantes the ability to shoot first and ask questions later. When we see laws like stand-your-ground go into effect in states like Florida, for example, we see the number of gun homicides increase, particularly those people of color, and that often the people who are prosecuted for those crimes go free. And it's a dangerous law. It's 
one that really serves the NRA's purpose of guns for anyone, anytime, anywhere, no questions asked. So we have successfully beat back those laws in state houses for the most part. A couple have passed. But this year, I'm very proud that the three states that tried to pass them failed. And I think the data is starting to show lawmakers that passing Stand Your Ground actually does not deter crime. It does not deter murder. It it increases it. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about in in your advocacy. Talk about some of your victories. Talk about Starbucks. Talk about Mm -hmm. Dick's Sporting Goods. Talk about those things because I don't don't think those get enough attention. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that we did, it was June of 2013, we'd only been around six months, was to get Starbucks to change their gun policy. And the reason was that I had seen on the news that Starbucks was going to stop allowing cigarettes, even electronic, 20 feet outside their stores regardless of state laws. So I called and said, well, will you still allow open carry? Open carry is a practice legal in 45 states where you can openly carry a semi-automatic rifle or a handgun in your pocket. Now, can you say that again? It is, it is legal in 45 states. That, I have to say, was one of the most shocking statistics. And you look at the states where it's where it's legal, and it's mind-boggling. It's legal where I live, in Colorado, and we see it. Starbucks said that they would still follow the state law as it pertained to guns. We embarked on something we call a mom-cot. <laughs> we were so small, we couldn't even do an all-out boycott, so we just did skip Starbucks Saturdays. And we also made images of what open carry looks like go viral, especially inside Starbucks. Within three months, the CEO of Starbucks came out and said, guns are no longer welcome inside our stores. So we knew that we were on to something. And we did that with over a dozen other major restaurants and retailers sort of kicking and screaming. You know, we dragged them into this issue. And what's really been a sea change is that now those companies come to us and they say, what should our gun policies be? But also, can we part, be part of your coalition as you work on this issue in states or at a federal level? Dick's Sporting Goods, Tom's Shoes. I have to say Whataburger is one of those <laughs> things where as somebody who spent some time in places like Texas, they banned them. Some of your victories, I have to say, are incredibly impressive. Well, you know, Chipotle was allowing open carry inside its stores, and there's this infamous picture of these two guys with semi-automatic rifles strapped to their chest, you know, getting a burrito. And it only took us three days using the hashtag burritos, not bullets, to get them to change their policy. That is amazing. One of the sections in your book, you say, work with our so-called enemies. Why is it important to create a bigger tent and diversify Mom's Demand Action? Well, look, we know that Not only do about 90% of Americans support stronger gun laws, 80% of gun owners do. Only 1 in 10 gun owners belong to the NRA. 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws. So, you know, people that you sort of think would naturally be your enemy aren't necessarily. And even Republicans. Last year, we passed stronger gun laws in 20 states. Nine were signed by Republican governors. We're not going to unelect every single lawmaker who disagrees with us. But we can change their hearts and minds, and we have a lot of examples of that. One of the things I found interesting in your messaging is you, you're very clear that you're not anti-gun. Talk about that for a minute in terms of how important that is to the debate and to the policy. Anytime you say you want stronger gun laws, there is a group of extremists who will say, you know, you're anti-gun. You want to take everyone's guns away or you want to undo the Second Amendment. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to gun owners. This is not about undoing the Second Amendment. This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. And it's something the vast majority of Americans agree with. You mentioned the Toomey Mansion, Mansion Toomey. And Pat Toomey is a conservative Republican senator from Pennsylvania. In 2016, 
Moms Demand Action endorsed Pat Toomey. We did. He did the right thing. He had our back, so we said we would have his back. And he has proven time and time again on this issue that he is a champion of gun safety. And and it's incredibly important in a place like Pennsylvania that's a pretty red state, purple. And he recently said that he believes that if H.R. 8, which is the bill that just passed the House, would require a background check on every gun sale, He said it would pass by 60 votes in the Senate if it was given a chance to be voted on, and I'm sure he would lead that effort. Your policies are data-driven. You identify three of them that you say will save the most lives, and I want to go through those. Closing gun loopholes in the background check system, keeping guns out of the hands of known domestic abusers, and passing red flag laws. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the closing the loopholes in the background check system. How do you do that state by state? So right now, if you buy a gun from a licensed dealer, you have to have a background check. If you buy it from an unlicensed dealer, for example, online or at a gun show, you do not. And it's almost like if you had two lines at TSA that you could choose one to go through. Obviously, criminals would choose the one where they didn't have to go through security. And that's how guns get in the hands of dangerous people. So we have gone state by state, and we have closed that background check loophole in 21 states so far. That is important at the state level, but at the same time, guns cross state lines as easily as cars do. So we do need that to be a federal law. Given the makeup of Congress, given where we are as a country in terms of the divisions, is this something that you have to pursue at the state level? Is there any hope at the federal level? This will absolutely happen at the federal level. 100 people are shot and killed in this country every single day. This is not sustainable. But what I have learned in the last six and a half years is that Congress is actually where this work ends. It's not where it begins. We needed to build a political movement that could go toe-to-toe with the gun lobby. That did not exist before the Sandy Hook shooting tragedy. And that is painstaking work. You have to get on the ground and create communities and become a political powerhouse in every single state house. And that takes time. And that's what we've spent so much time doing for this, the, the past six and a half years. But what happens is you have these wins in state houses and in boardrooms. It's like, much like marriage equality. And eventually you point the president and Congress in the right direction. But Playing defense, we talked about that. That's important too. You know, the first two years of Donald Trump's presidency, he had a Republican Congress. And he still, despite the fact that the NRA gave him $30 million, was not able to pass the NRA's priority legislation, something called concealed carry reciprocity and deregulating silencers. They absolutely expected a return on their investment, and they did not get one. Talk about keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers and how important this is to saving lives. Since our inception as an organization, we have passed laws in 28 states that keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. At the federal level, there is a law that makes convicted domestic abusers prohibited purchasers. However, that law does not include dating partners or stalkers as prohibited purchasers. So we have to go into the states until they change that federal law and do it state by state. So broaden the definition of what a domestic abuser is, but also put teeth in the laws that allow law enforcement to remove the guns domestic abusers already have. What's a red flag law? A red flag law allows police and law enforcement to remove the guns from someone who appears to be a danger to themselves or others. Five states had these laws before the Parkland shooting tragedy. Since then, we've gone into state legislatures, and it's something that that really 
is appealing across the aisle to both Republicans and Democrats. We now have them in 15 states, including where I live in Colorado. And there is a red flag law waiting to be signed on the governor's desk in both Hawaii and Nevada. So these laws are really taking hold. My former colleague, Lucy McBath, who is now a congresswoman in Georgia, she actually introduced a federal red flag law just a couple days ago. So these these laws are effective. They're proven by data to work. And we want to make sure they're in every state and at the federal level. I think that point about playing defense is really important. I think when people think of lobbyists and activists, they think of passing laws. Have you been much more successful in stopping laws than you have in in passing laws? Playing defense is a huge part of this work. Every year, the NRA shows up and tries to pass bills that would allow guns on college campuses, that would arm teachers, that would allow something called permitless carry uh, that would expand stand-your-ground laws. And so we have to be vigilant and show up at gun bill hearings and make sure that we are seen as a large coalition to oppose them. That takes a lot of organizing power. But we have a 90% track record of stopping bad NRA legislation every single year. Last year, we stopped over 1,000 bad gun bills. And these are laws that would have sailed through state houses in the past before we had this grassroots army to say, not in my community, you won't. Let's talk a little bit about moms being in charge. When asked how many women she thinks is the right number to serve on the Supreme Court, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has famously said nine. We've had nine men and nobody questioned that. In your book, you talk about the good news and the bad news for women running for office. Let's start with the bad news. What are the challenges and the obstacles that women have to overcome in running for office? Well, women are judged in an entirely different way than men, whether it's their qualifications. Being a mom more than qualifies you to be a lawmaker. If you spent any time in your state house, you realize that these people are not rocket scientists. And that as a mom, you have incredible skills of negotiation and budget management and really multitasking. But also women are judged on their looks and so many other things because the vast majority of our lawmakers in this country are men. Women only hold about 17% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. That's the obstacle. But on the flip side, we know that not only do women go to the polls and vote for gun safety, when they're elected, they legislate on gun safety. So that's why we are working to encourage our volunteers and the gun violence survivors who work with us to take the skills we've given them in activism and move from just shaping policy to actually making it. And in the last election in 2018, about 40 of our volunteers ran for office and 17 won, all the way from city council to Congress. And we're very hopeful that 2020 will be no different. You talk in your book about being in the Javits Center on election night 2016. Too soon. Too soon. (laughs) Sorry about that. But I really think that it's an important point you make about keeping going. You know, that was a really tough night, and the outcome was certainly not what we expected. We thought we were about to spend four years playing offense on this issue, and we realized we'd have to play defense again at a federal level. But at the same time, we also became stronger as an organization. We had built this machinery that could point women in the right direction, give them something important to do, feel like they were winning, embolden and empower them. And that's why so many women came to our organization after the election, because they knew that the NRA had been a prime supporter of the president and that this was an issue we'd really have to be vigilant about. So in in the early days, it was very, very difficult. But 
when you look at the fact that the NRA and gun manufacturers in the hole over $100 million because they don't have a boogeyman in the White House to make people afraid every time there's a mass shooting, you see that that they're much weaker than we ever would have imagined they would be with this administration. You maybe have answered my next question, but are you more hopeful today than you were in those in those days after that election? Yeah, you know, it's, you're, we're talking not too long after the horrific tragedy in Virginia Beach. And I saw so many politicians and pundits being so cynical about this issue and saying, we just don't have the will as a country to fix this. And it just, it's dangerous to act as though Americans don't have any power or that they can't act or to erase the work that's been done by so many women, particularly women of color in this country, on this issue. I wouldn't wake up as a volunteer and do this work every day if we weren't winning. The NRA is weaker than they've ever been. We are stronger as a movement than we've ever been. We outspent and outmaneuvered the NRA in the midterm elections. Going into 2020, they have their hands tied behind their back. They're under investigation. They're they don't have a lot of money to play with. And yet, here we are, 350,000 donors, hundreds of thousands of volunteers, nearly 6 million supporters. Every single candidate is competing to be the best on this issue, which is a sea change in American politics. So, yes, I'm very hopeful. I have spent a lot of time in Washington in my career. I've seen a lot of people advocate on a lot of issues. You are remarkable. It is amazingly impressive what you've been able to do and – it sort of begs the question, you encourage women to run. Have you thought about it? I've thought about it. I, I don't know the answer. I never will say no, especially given that I'm telling other women they have a moral imperative to run. But I feel like I'm getting so much done as the founder of Moms to Men Action. And I also find such fulfillment in helping other people run for office, whether you know it's Lucy McBath running for Congress or it's a woman who decides she wants to be on her school board. That is an incredible privilege to me to be able to help those women become elected officials. You and your organization are all about action. What do you say to those people who want to do something but don't know how to get involved, a call to action? What is your advice to those people who feel passionately, who understand that this is a huge issue, but they really don't know and they're lost on how to get involved? Well, every little bit of activism works you may think that you don't have enough time to get involved, whether it's gun violence prevention or any issue. But what I have learned is that it's like drips on a rock. And we have something we call naptivism for busy moms. So when your kid is taking a nap and you do have that one hour and you want to get involved, here are things you can do. You know, you can send an email, you can make a phone call, you can use a hashtag. We make it so easy. And whether you can carve out an extra work week as a volunteer or whether you only have an hour or two, I think that's what's so effective in our organization, mainly because it's run by type A women who don't have time to mess around. I always see people on Twitter say, oh, wow, I just went to a Moms to Man Action meeting and they are not messing around. Like they will give you stuff to do and they are efficient and you will get your time's worth out of it. And I think that's the key is just because you maybe can't make it a full-time job, that doesn't mean that your voice isn't important. It is. And until, frankly, every American gets off the sideline on this issue, we see that 90% of Americans support this issue. Until they all use their voices and votes on it, we're still going to be in the middle of this crisis. And so it is imperative that everyone act. So where can people find you? 
We make it so easy. So first you can text the word JOIN to 64433. You will have a volunteer get back in touch with you instantaneously and invite you to an event in your community. You can go to momsdemandaction.org and learn more there. We have a Facebook page for every state in addition to a main Facebook page. Our handle is at momsdemand. I'm at, at Shannon R. Watts. And if you want to learn more about my book, you can go to fightlikeamother.org. It is an amazing book. We read a lot of books around here. I have to say from the substance to you have the best chapter titles of any book that I've read in the past. <laughs> Thank you. Shannon Watts, mother, activist, author, and someone who certainly has channeled her inner badass. Thank you so much for joining us. And Thank you. please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.